following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. John came as a, a great prophet. Jesus is described and identified as a coming king. Um, so the story starts off, as, as we read, as we saw in the, the skit, uh, the angel Gabriel, um, six months after he's just met with Elizabeth, gets sent back to earth with another message. And I can just picture uh, what's going through Gabriel's mind. You know, he's going, you know, this first time I did this with that Zechariah guy in the temple, he kind of just didn't get it. So I can just see Gabriel trying to really polish his presentation. You know, maybe it was in my delivery that something didn't get through, you know. So uh, I don't know if he's kind of nervous about this encounter with Mary, that you know, he's going to be more convincing or something. Um, probably not. But um, he comes to uh, Mary, as he did to Zechariah. And um, uh, Luke has to give some details. Unlike, unlike John uh, and, and Zechariah, this is not in Jerusalem. This is not at the temple. This is not in the holy place. This is in Nazareth. Uh, and, you know, we all, we've all heard of Nazareth, right? Anybody not heard of Nazareth? <laughs> we, know, we know Nazareth, right? So we kind of miss the implication of this. But if you'll notice, uh, Luke says um, that the angel came to Mary um, uh, in, in the region of Galilee, this place called Nazareth. Uh, Luke's got to spell this out. The Bible has to spell this because... Nobody really knew where Nazareth was in Jesus' day. It was in a remote region of of a remote rural area, Galilee, this tiny insignificant village that most people would never have heard of or known about. And and the the angel comes to Mary, who herself, as we know, was a a young virgin, young maiden. Um, The typical marriage age in that day was likely between 13 and 15. So she's very likely a young teenager, um, a, a nobody, right? If, if Zechariah was a nobody, Mary takes us to a whole other level, right? Of just a very common, ordinary young young girl, um, and and uh, in this out of the way village, and the angel says to her, "Hail, O favored one." Uh, the word "favored" is the same word we get the word "grace" from. It's one who is looked on with, with special favor, who is about to receive some kind of special blessing. And uh, it's important that the story starts here. And it's important for us to just be clear about who Mary is. She is, of course, to be the mother of Jesus. Uh, she is not superwoman. She is not Saint Mary, right? He, the angel does not address her, Oh, Saint Mary, the mother of God, Okay doesn't say that. Now, he does say she's a favored one, meaning you're a nobody who's about to be blessed by God's grace, right? You are about to be the recipient of God's incredible work of grace, not because of who you are, but because of the God who favors you. In fact, the the expression there, oh, favored one, could really be one who is being pursued by grace. One who's being pursued by grace. Here's this 13-year-old girl who, in her uh, 14-year-old, whatever, young girl, who was clearly in a place of special and unique childlike innocence. Uh, In that sense, she was probably holier than most of us because 
She just hadn't lived that long yet. Okay, She hadn't lived long enough to really mess things up so bad. Um, but if you look forward and you read ahead in the gospel story, as Mary gets older, she proves herself to be no different than us. Right? She questions who Jesus is. She thinks he's insane. She wants to rescue him. She wants to be super mom. Right? Uh, she has problems. And Mary is not chosen because of her great sainthood, because of her exceptional godliness or holiness or character. She is chosen by a, a free act of God's grace and kindness to this young girl. And she's about to become a superstar by no act or work of her own. She just becomes the object of God's grace as God favors her. Well, of course, uh, her, her response to this is she's conf- confused and disturbed. Um, and she is trying to think what the angel could mean by this. What is this guy talking about? And you can put yourself in her shoes. Uh, she's about to be the recipient of an incredible act of God's power and grace. And naturally, Mary in her lowliness and humility, who understands well uh, who she is, can't imagine what this angel is talking about. Right? Why would this angel show up? Why would he be talking to a person in this remote village of Nazareth? Why would he be talking to her, right? Uh, this young girl. And she cannot make sense of this. Uh, what would he possibly, what would a messenger of God possibly have to do with me? What would God, does, why would God even notice me? Right? And that's the, the source of her perplexity and confusion, right? And uh, the angel quickly rescues her and says, uh, Don't be afraid, for you have found, you have found favor with God. Uh, repeats that, that concept again. You're, you're favored, you're graced by God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, uh, the angel rattles this off. And I can just imagine, okay, if Mary is confused and perplexed before this, okay, this should just take it like to a whole nother extreme level. Because when we stop for a moment and look carefully at what this angel is saying, uh, he is declaring to Mary that she is about to give birth to the long-awaited hope of Israel, right? The one who would be the ultimate and supreme king, who would be a king like no other in Israel. And again, let's notice the comparisons between John and Jesus real briefly. Uh, First of all, John is named, and John's name means um, uh, Jehovah is a gracious giver, right? Jehovah's gracious giver. Jesus is named by the angel also. Jesus, uh, Yeshua, uh, Joshua, right? Same name, uh, which means what? Jehovah saves, right? Jehovah saves, right? Uh, John's role is one pointing to God as a gracious giver, and what God gives is his redeemer. Jesus is the one who is the redeemer, he is the one who saves. Uh, it goes on, it says that, that he will, of Jesus, it says he will be great. Do you remember what it says about John? It says John will be great in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of God, right? Um, which is better, to be great in the eyes of God or just to be great? Well, actually, uh, in, in Greek language, 
an unqualified, the word's mega, right? Mega, great. An unqualified mega is way better than a qualified one, right? So to be great in the eyes of the Lord is good, and John was an exceptional prophet of high standing. But to just be plain and simply great is a, uh, a description, an adjective that's used primarily and almost exclusively of God alone, right? Of God alone. John was great in the size of God. Jesus is just plain, unqualified greatness. Uh, Jesus is the Son of the Most High, and a little bit later the angel says the Son of God. Um, John, it said, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. God would be with John in a special and unique way. Jesus jumps to a whole other level, right? He is just plain Son of God. Son of the Most High. Right? He, he's not just uh, imbued, not just anointed with God's Holy Spirit and presence. He is from God. Um, now, just, just a disclaimer aside, this is a little rabbit trail for theologians and scholarly types. Okay, the rest of you can take a short nap. You know, we know all about the incarnation. Right? We know that Jesus was the God-man. And uh, it's tempting to see in these verses, and certainly... These verses point to that reality. Jesus is the Son of God. We know that that means He was the eternally existent, pre-existent second person of the Trinity who in, in His birth takes on humanness and becomes a man. So He's fully God, fully man. Um, as, the, as the angels explaining this to Mary, Mary would have had absolutely no categories for that right, uh, that were accurate. And in fact, the early church had no categories for this. And the reality is that history shows us that it was about 400 years before the church really understood and could put together and could articulate what was meant by the incarnation. Uh, In fact, one of the reasons I think the early scripture writers avoided that term is that one of the words for incarnation in Greek is the word avatar. What is an avatar? Well, an avatar is a projection of something, right? The, the, the Greek gods could have projections that would come to earth, right? And they could create an avatar. They could create a projection. Uh, they could beam themselves in some form on earth, right? Well, the gospel writers are very careful not to confuse Jesus as some ad- Greek avatar, right? So he's the son of God. Mary's not thinking about his incarnation at this point, even though we, you know, want to read into that. And it's true. Jesus was that. Okay, side note for you scholars. Okay, back to the story. Okay, Jesus, you know, Mary's, Mary understands Son of God means, you know, you're way above average. Okay, you're exceptional. Uh, Son of the Most High. This is a very special, unique, uh, messianic fulfillment, right? It's King. He's Messiah. Um, He will be given the throne of David. Okay, now the angel gets real specific. He's narrowing it down in the scope of what really he's talking about. Jesus will be given the throne of David. Okay, this Mary understands, right? Her theology gets this. Um, John would be a great prophet. Jesus would be the great king. And the Jews, of course, uh, knew this prophecy uh, given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, that um, 
when, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Right, so, so Mary gets this, okay, to be given the throne of David is to be the fulfillment of this promise. Um, and, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, over Israel forever. Uh, John's role would be to turn Israel back to God. Jesus' role would be to be, um, to be ruler, to be king, to govern over Israel, not just for a season, but forever. Right? And finally, it says his kingdom will never end. John's legacy was that he would make a prepared people, right? that he would leave a people prepared for the coming one. But it's clear in this passage that Jesus is the coming one. And his legacy would be a kingdom that would last forever. Literally, uh, uh, days without end. Uh, and the word that's used here for uh, his kingdom will never end is the idea of a completed and finished kingdom that stands in its completed state forever. Right? Not some kind of developing or ongoing kingdom, but a fully established, glorious kingdom that will never be toppled or diminished or reduced or end. Um, uh, Mary, even in her confusion, and and I just can't even imagine the shock of this. Okay, an angel shows up one day. You're going to have a baby. It's going to be king of the world, fulfillment of all prophecy for all time and space. Congratulations. You know, uh, what does your mind do with that, right? Well, whatever her, however her perplexity and confusion grew, one thing is clear. She would have understood this as the readers uh, of Luke's letter, as the messianic fulfillment of a promised king. Um, God had made numer- numerous promises to Israel, and at the center of many of those promises was this eternal king, the establish- and, and, uh, establishment of David's throne, and this ongoing kingdom where Israel would be restored as a full-blown kingdom with a king. Right? Now, this was the hope of Israel. And the reason it was the hope is that while David did have descendants and there was his throne and his kingdom did last for quite a long time, the truth was that eventually Israel had sinned, the nation had been taken into captivity, Jerusalem and its palaces and its temple were destroyed, and there was no longer a throne of David. And for many centuries they had lived under the rule and domination of other countries, currently, of course, under the rule of Rome. There was a pharaoh who lived in Rome, not a king who ruled in Jerusalem. And while Herod was called... Uh, the king of Judea, nobody considered him the king of the Jews by any means. And nobody would have said he had a claim to David's throne. So they are looking for a king. Uh, They are looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise, and that is their hope. And it's clear now that that God is about to fulfill that promise in, in extraordinary and incredible ways in the person of Jesus. Um. So, as the story unfolds, um, Mary, pondering these thoughts, has questions, right? I would have questions. Maybe you would have questions. Um, This is staggering news, okay? This is staggering. If we could put ourselves in the the shoes of people in Israel, 
this is what they had been looking for for a long, long time. And I would have a lot of questions, but I would not have necessarily asked the question Mary asks. I would want to know things like, well, well, you know, I'm just like this poor teenage girl from Nazareth. How could my child possibly become king, right? Uh, there's some debate, actually, over whether Mary was actually, you know, her, her genealogy. We know that Jesus was connected with the throne of David through, through Joseph, and, and, and Luke makes that clear here, that it's, it's Joseph's genealogy, genealogy and lineage of David that counts, right? Uh, she could be thinking about that, you know. Uh, you, know if, you know, God, if you really want to do this, here's a suggestion. Pick somebody famous who lives in Jerusalem, Right? You know, um, how's this? I, I can't see this working for me, right? She might be thinking. She could potentially think questions like, um, you know, "Son of the Most High, Son of God." Exactly. What do you mean by that? You know, what 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 qualifies this? What makes him Son of God? What's his character like? What does it What does it mean to be the Son of God? I would want to wrestle with those kind of theological questions. Um, um, you know, how will he establish his throne? You know, there's no king, there's no kingdom. We're actually, if you hadn't noticed, God, we're under Roman rule. You know, um, how, how are you going to pull this off, right? There's all these questions that she could be asking. Um, biggest question of all I would want to know is, what do you mean by he will reign forever? Like, how, how, you know, people die, you know. How is he going to reign forever? Is this like symbolic? Are you speaking figuratively here? Figuratively here? Do you mean like his descendants will go on forever? Right? Well, Mary doesn't question those things. And she largely takes it by faith. Wow. Wow. Uh, but she does have one important question. And, of course, Mary's question is this. Uh, Mary says, uh, how can this happen since I'm a virgin, right? She's not thinking about politics or history. She's thinking mostly about biology. Um, she knows how this works, right? And the language here is quite explicit. Um, she says, you know, I've never been with a man. You know, she says, you know, I'm 14. You know, a couple of years ago, I went through seventh grade health class. I learned about this, right? I learned about the whole birds and bees thing. And, you know, right now, that's just not happening for me. Right? I just want to be clear on that, Okay. I have not been with a man. I don't know a man. And I'm not, it's actually present tense, literally, I'm not currently knowing a man. Right? And so, um, a couple of things are clear from this. One, Mary has no doubt that the angel is talking about something special and unique. Right? Mary doesn't think, and is not assuming here, that the angel is saying, well, you know, you're betrothed to Joseph, and when you get married... You know, you're going to get pregnant and your child's going to be this king. Uh, we don't really know the subtleties of what the angel communicated, and there's a lot of theories on how Mary may have got this impression. We don't know. But in the subtleties of that communication between the angel and Mary, she clearly understood the angel saying, no, you're going to get pregnant really soon before you are actually married and are in a married relationship as husband and wife with, with Joseph. Right? And it, it, we know that the betrothal period was a, a year long. It could be that she's at the very beginning. Maybe she was just recently betrothed to Joseph and has a year to wait. And so the language and the, 
clearly what, what Mary's understanding is that the angel's talking about getting pregnant really soon. And that this is going to happen now. And of course, she's got concerns about this. You know, uh, yeah, this is my big question, right? She's not doubting, uh, unlike, unlike Zechariah. She's not doubting. She's just uh, wanting more information, right? And, and, and so the angel re- replies, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Uh, the angel explains, this is going to be a un- an incredibly unique, unparalleled, creative work of God. God is going to create in you this baby, uh, much as he did when he created Adam. And it's a birth that is unparalleled and unmatched since the time of Adam. In all history, there's never been a person who's come into being this way. Uh, and again, that's a, a stark contrast with John's story and Jesus. Uh, while John's birth was very miraculous, it was not unprecedented. And in the Old Testament, there were many examples of barren elderly women who gave birth to a special promised child. There is no precedence for this. Right? Jesus' birth is extremely unique and exceptional. And while the uh, the, the, the angel explains how this will happen, that it will be a, a creative, special work of God through his power and through his spirit. Uh, the greater focus of it is not the way Jesus is conceived. It is the reason. It is the meaning. And Mary does not ask a question, but uh, the angel gives an answer. He says, uh, by this, um, or through this, uh, the child will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. The baby born to you will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. Okay? Uh, in this context, the word holy uh, you know, can have two meanings. It can mean to be set apart. It can also mean to be morally pure. Here, the, the emphasis is certainly, um, I mean, both are included, but the emphasis is on the set apart part. Jesus is really in a class all by himself marked uh, by his unique conception. Uh, we, we talk about his unique birth. He was born like everybody else, okay? Nothing unique about that, but unique in his conception, right? Uh, and that um, being conceived without a father as a creative special work of God in, in the womb of Mary distinguishes Jesus. He is a human being absolutely like no other, right? except for perhaps going back to Adam, Adam could claim uh, a likeness to Jesus because he was purely created by God, not in any way the product of normal biology. In that sense, Jesus and Adam are a lot alike. Uh, But unlike Adam, Jesus is born. Uh, And the significance of this is that Jesus is in a class of his own. It does not make him any less human. Jesus is absolutely fully human. He is formed in the womb of Mary fully human, starting off as a single cell just like everybody else does and formed in the womb and growing as a baby and a child. Uh, So it does not make him any less human, but it does make him uniquely human. Jesus is not like us. Uh, No one is is like Jesus. He's in a class by himself. 
Um, Zechariah asks for a sign. Mary does not, but she gets one anyway. Of course, Zechariah's sign is he all of a sudden can't talk. Uh, the angel says to Mary, uh, What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but now she is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Uh, it's, it's incredible. John, uh, Luke, sorry, Luke finishes this account uh, by showing that John, already at the ripe old age of six months in the womb, is doing his job. Right? He is already pointing to Jesus as the coming one. And his very uh, birth is a sign confirming what the angel tells Mary, right? that, that Jesus is coming as a king, uh, the fulfillment of messianic promise and prophecy. Um, <clears throat> Let me just wrap up and apply some things here. And um, it's what Christmas is about, right? We celebrate the hope of a coming king. Uh, and, and the hope of this Jesus who came one, who came as king and who will, well, who will fulfill, um, fulfill God's purpose and plan uh, again in the completion of that kingdom, right? Uh, but, but there's also some things in here that are, I think, very significant and relevant for us personally. And the story ends with, this, with these two verses, okay? It ends by this. It says, for the angel says, there is nothing impossible with God. Okay, so the angel's last word is this. There is nothing impossible for God. And Mary's response to that is, I am the Lord's servant May everything you have said about me come true. And the angel left her. Okay, I love that uh, picture here. Uh, a God who shows up and does impossible things. And Mary's response to that. And let, let, me, let me just go through this real quick and um, talk about how this can apply some to our own life. Um, God will accomplish his purpose. What is our hope? Well, we're hoping in the second coming of Christ, right? We ought to be hoping in the fulfillment of God's promises. Are you guys hoping in that? Anybody? Hope so. All right. This Advent Sunday is a Sunday of hope. And it's a Sunday when we look to the hope that God is a God who keeps His promises. He keeps His Word. Uh, and He does it regardless of how impossible it may seem to us. So in Jesus' story, he does it through a virgin birth. He does it through the impossibleness of the cross. Right? He saves the world by dying. Uh, he does it through, through resurrection, bringing the dead back to life. His miracles of his saving work are impossible to us, but not impossible to God. Do you ever think about how, it, how it, impossible it is that you got saved? It's one of the most incredible, impossible works of God. Because to us, could we do this? We can't, right? God alone can do the saving work in our life. Um, so, does God want to do impossible things in your life? Well, He did it by saving you. If you're not saved this morning, He wants to do it by saving you. Uh, it's an impossible work of God He wants to do in your life. But beyond that, does God want to do impossible things in your life? 
Well, if you're like me, a lot of times I feel like the things God's asking me to do are impossible. You ever feel that way? Why would God ask me to do this? Well, Mary gives us some great uh, examples. She's a great model of how God wants to work in our life. Let's look at just a few things real quickly that Mary models extraordinarily well. Uh, First off, her story is about a person who is pursued by grace, right? She shows up, she is favored, she is highly favored, she is pursued by grace. Um, We are objects of God's grace. God is pursuing you and I by grace. And the impossible thing that God wanted to do in Mary's life had nothing to do with her own character or life. Nothing to do with what she had performed or how she had lived to that point or would live that would merit God's attention. Okay, the whole point of this story is she's a very unlikely figure. And as her life goes on, as I said, she, she proves herself to be quite human. Uh, uh, we don't... Uh, we don't set her apart as unique from any other human being. Some do. We should not. We should not. She is an object of grace. Likewise, whatever God wants to do in our life, impossible or otherwise, He does purely out of His grace. We are, like Mary, pursued by God's grace. He favors you, not because of anything you've done or who you are, but because of his goodness, right? Okay, so it begins there. It begins with God's, the operation and working of his grace in our life. Uh, second thing, though, is that we should be a people who are seeking God's promises. Uh, Mary may not have been exceptionally spiritual, but she was, like most Jews, seeking the fulfillment of God's promise in her day. That's hope, right? That is what hope is. It is Actively seeking the fulfillment of God's promises. Are you seeking the fulfillment of God's promises in your life? Do you know what they are? Right? Do you know what God has promised you? There's a, there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to read them all, but here's a couple to think about. He has promised that He will never leave us or forsake us. Are you living, pursuing that truth, that promise, that God is with you, and he's promised to never, ever leave you, abandon you, or forsake you. Okay? Do you live pursuing that promise? What would that look like in your life? Um, he, will, he, he says that he loves us and that he wants to reveal himself to us. Do you believe that promise? Okay. Now the promise is not this. If you're a pretty decent good person, if you go to church and you know, give enough money and don't sin too much and don't mess up too much, I will love you. That's not the promise, right? The promise is in my grace and favor, I love you, even though you don't do any of those things very well, right? And you mess up and you make mistakes and you fail often. I still love you and I seek to reveal myself to you, right? God wants to ever new reveal himself to you. Are we seeking that? Are we seeking that revelation of God in our life daily? Um, He has promised to pour out his Holy Spirit. Okay, John in his day was a unique, very unique, in that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
For us, that is a guaranteed right for every follower of Christ. He has promised to pour out His Holy Spirit in us so that we do all of our life and ministry filled and empowered by His Holy Spirit. What a promise, right? What a promise. People in the Old Testament uh, long to be like the prophet who was uniquely empowered by the Holy Spirit. For us, it's universal, right? We all get that gift. We live seeking the fulfillment of that promise in our life. We are promised that God wants us to bear fruit by our life. And not just fruit, but lots of fruit. And not just lots of fruit, but eternal fruit. Okay, those are just some of the promises of God. Uh, do we live seeking the fulfillment of those promises in our life? And of course, the greatest of all is that Jesus is coming back and he is going to fulfill uh, his promised kingdom. Right? That we are part of his grand eternal kingdom that will never end. Are we seeking that? Are we living, seeking, and hoping for the return of the king? Um, third thing. Uh, Mary, rather unwittingly, actually, I don't think she knew she was doing this or tried to do this, but Mary was waiting for God's plan. Right? Uh, Mary, because of her age, her place, her, her situation, status, and her world in that day, Mary is not planning anything. Right? Mary's not in a place where she's, you know, written out her lifelong career goals and is coming to God with, God, this is how I'm going to save the world. Okay? And I've got this great plan. You're going to love this, God. Right? Mary's just living her life and just waiting on God's plan and purpose to unfold in her life. Right? Um, and uh, what's significant in this story is that God does incredible things in her life, but God clearly speaks to her and unfolds His plan for her life. Uh, I don't always do this very well. I don't know about you, but for me it just doesn't always work this way. Because I think too much, and I like my thoughts, and I think I have good ideas. Dangerous thing, okay? And if you have good ideas, it's dangerous. Okay, this thinking thing can get you in trouble, right? Um, now, I'm not saying we shouldn't think and we shouldn't have ideas, we shouldn't have goals. But the problem is this. A lot of times we're convinced that God's up in heaven and God doesn't think much and God really doesn't plan much, right? Um, and he's, he's turned us loose to, to, to come up with plans for Him. And it's our job to come up with ideas and, and go with it and then say, God, I've got this great idea, you're going to love this. And I'm going to trust you because, you know, pastor says we're supposed to trust God for the impossible. So I'm going to trust you for the impossible. I've got this great idea. You know, if you'll just put your stamp on that and just do the impossible, we'll be good to go. Right? You ever do that? Uh, I do it a lot. Right? I do it a lot. Rather than waiting, hearing God, and clearly knowing His purpose and plan, and moving forward knowing that I've heard from God. Now again, I'm not saying we shouldn't plan, and sometimes the hearing involves us actively pursuing plans, but we should always be laying those plans out before God, right? And there should always be a waiting, listening, seeking process where we say, God, you know, i got lots of ideas, but I need to hear from you about what you want to do in my life. Right? What are you calling me to? Because here's the reality. 
God will do the impossible to accomplish His plan, not ours. Right? And there's really two problems with our plans. It's not that they're bad. A lot of times they're good. A lot of times, you know, we read Scripture and we, we want to fulfill the Great Commission. We want to love people. We want to proclaim the Gospel. And so God's given us some of that and He, he wants us to use our brains. We should do that. But there's a couple of problems with our plans. Uh, from my experience, okay? This is not necessarily from Scripture, just my own ex- experience. First of all, my plans tend to be way too small. Way too small, right? Um, second of all, uh, my plans tend to be in a very clear box, right? And sometimes God's plans are way outside of that box. Mary, Mary you know, I, I just can't imagine Mary sitting around going, you know, wouldn't a virgin conception be cool? Now, I like that. I'm going to pray for that because I think that would just be like, that would rock. Right? I mean, it's so far off of her radar. It's so off of, far of everybody's radar. This is an idea nobody would come up with. Right? And that's the problem. Our ideas tend to be it's like, you know, God's going, well, it's a good idea, you know. Only 12 million people have thought of that idea, and it didn't work for them. I've got an idea <laughs> you've never thought of, right? Let's try that. Okay? And, our, and our ideas tend to be way too small. Right? Our, our, our ideas, God wants to do the impossible. Honestly, my ideas are never impossible, right? Because I don't have that much faith. My ideas are what I can do to help God out. God's ideas are what He can do 10,000 times beyond what I could ever possibly do to show His glory and power in my life. Right. Uh, last thing. So, so God does want to do the impossible, and He will accomplish His purpose, and oftentimes He will accomplish His purpose in impossible ways. So if we're in God's will, if we're in His plan, if we're pursuing what God wants to do, we ought to expect that some of it's going to be impossible. In fact, I would say that often it's, it's going to be far beyond what we, what we conceive as, as a possibility. And we're going to go, God, like Mary, you know, how can this be? You know, how can this be? How could this possibly come about? Um, that's God's part. What is our part in this? Well, Mary, it says, Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said come about me come true. Mary does one simple thing in all this. She simply yields to the king. She yields to the king. And when I use the word yield here, I don't mean the minor use of yield like we, we, we do in, in traffic. You know, you yield the traffic. It just means you kind of slow down, and it means they got their you know, right-of-way in Thailand uh, right-of-way means they got there before you did. <laughs> and so they have right-of-way. And so I yield rather than run into them. <laughs> That's one use of the word yielding, right? But there's another use that, uh, that's used of a king or one in supreme authority. And in this sense, it means to abdicate, to admit defeat, to bow, to capitulate, to cave in, to give up the struggle and give way to one who is greater, right? It's used in a military sense of laying down one's arms and losing, of raising the white flag and surrender. It is relinquishing my rights. It is resigning myself to one who is greater. It is submitting and surrendering to them. It is throwing in the towel of defeat. That's how I'm using the word here. And Mary does this. Okay, 
the angels just said, a king is going to be born to you. The king whose kingdom you've looked for, who will rule over Israel forever, whose kingdom will never end. And Mary, in light of this revelation, before this king has one option. It is to yield, right? To say, and literally she says, I am a slave. I am your slave. Do to me as you will. I surrender my own rights and agenda. And there's plenty of things Mary could have been concerned about. She could have said, you know, God, this, just so you know, this isn't going to look real good for me, right? This is going to wreck my reputation. Uh, this could end my engagement, right? I have no guarantee that Joseph won't ditch me. Um, she doesn't complain. She doesn't bring up objections. She doesn't say, you know, God, I had plans. You know, this year I was going to be planning my wedding. It was going to be a big deal. I'm, I'm kind of busy right now. I don't have time for this morning sickness thing, right? Uh, I got plans. I got an agenda. I got my own life to live. She says, no, I yield to the king, right? That's what God asks of us. He asks us to yield our life to the king, to his sovereign rule and authority and plan over our life. I lay down my agenda, my rights, my plans, my goals, and I yield them and I say, God, your plan is infinitely bigger and better and grander. Your kingdom is eternal. I just want to do what you want to do in my life. I yield to that. I humbly surrender myself to you. Uh, <clears throat> Let me close with one story from my own life. And, you know, I can't, I, I wish I could, well, God wants to do this. God wants to do impossible things in our life. Uh, about almost exactly to the day, 22 years ago today, not the exact quite date, but it was the Sunday after Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, exactly 22 years ago, I preached my first sermon at this little church in southwest Colorado where I was called to be a pastor. Uh, I got there because um, because God wins, right? <laughs> I did not get there because I volunteered or because I wanted to be there. I had run from God and wrestled for a, a couple of years, actually, resisting his plan. And uh, finally, I surrendered. I yielded to my king, and I said, Okay, God, I will go. I will be a pastor. And so uh, the day after Thanksgiving, we loaded up everything we had in a moving truck. On that Saturday, we drove through this enormous blizzard to a place I had never seen. Okay? And I joined this mission group that said, you know, you don't get choices. They just said, yeah, go to this little church in southwest Colorado to people I had never met and a church I had never seen before and a community I had no idea about. So I get there. Uh, unpack our moving truck in this little house in this little village of 800 people, okay? 800 people. I mean, you know, 800 people has got to be some dog or cat that needs Jesus or something, you know? It's like, okay, we can do this. Not quite what I was thinking, but I'm yielded to the king, right? Next morning, we get up and uh, drive to the church. Well, the church is not in the town of 800. The church is 10 miles outside of a town of 800, Okay? So we drive out away from town, and you know, near town there's a few houses, a handful, 
You drive out 10 miles, there's no houses. Go out of the forest and I'm going, nobody lives out here. Because it's going to be like a church for the deer? What is this, right? I'm going, and there's, there's, I mean, there's like this handful of houses out there. And it's this church plant. And I get there. First thing at this church, there were about 18 people in church. Okay, as a church plant, okay. So it's like, okay, God can work with this. Now, out of 18 people, 10 of them were my family. Okay? Me and my wife, my four kids, my parents, and my brother who helped us move. We were the majority in the service that morning, right? And so here's my vision. I'm thinking, oh man, you know, God, if we could ever get to where we had 40 people on a Sunday morning, it would be a miracle. Okay, I'm thinking 20 is good, but I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going to say 40. If we could ever see 40 people coming to church out in the middle of nowhere, who would do this, right? And why did you send me here? Whose idea was this, right? Well, that was my vision. My vision is way smaller than God's. God's was so much bigger, right? And numbers are not everything, and it's not how you measure success. And, uh, you know, you can have a church of 10,000 people and be not successful. But just to give an idea of how God works, within less than two years, we were averaging 150 people in this church on Sunday morning, right? 150, out in the middle of nowhere, right? A few years later, for our big Christmas weekend, when we would have Christmas Eve and Christmas services, we would see between three and 400 people come through the doors of that church, that, to me, was impossible, right? Now, I don't share that because, because I think I'm great. Believe me, it was miraculous, okay? And I look back, and I've made so many mistakes. My first pastorate, and I'm probably still making a lot of the same mistakes. Uh, it's not about me, right? But it's about God doing far more than we could ever dream or think or imagine. Okay? Um, no book says go to some church as far away from the f- smallest town in the state of Colorado as you can get and start a church. You know, that's not, like they don't write church planting books that way, right? But God has ideas not like ours. And he wants to do things in our lives infinitely, vastly greater than what we think or imagine, right? Our part is to simply say, I yield to the king. I yield to the king. God What is your plan? That is what I want to do. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.